The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I'm sure you've probably heard that phrase before. These words, delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in August of 1967, are inspiring, even when that arc seems to be bending further away from justice, not closer to it. On most days, I'm skeptical. You know, I want to have hope and I want to have faith, but our world just doesn't bend on hope and faith alone. It takes work. Just before he died in 1968, Dr. King had begun the work of the Poor People's Campaign, a multiracial coalition fighting for federal funding for a guaranteed annual income, programs to end poverty, and housing for the poor. Dr. King was assassinated before that work could be completed. But five decades later, the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II has taken up the mantle. Bishop Barber is the president of the nonprofit Repairs of the Breach, and he's co-chair of a new Poor People's Campaign, which he leads alongside the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. A powerful new movement is rising across America. From the Mississippi Delta to the Apache Stronghold, from the homeless encampments of Washington to the coal fields of West Virginia, we are the 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this country, and we are building the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. I'm Tremaine Lee, and this is Into America. This weekend, on Saturday, June 20th, the Poor People's Campaign is hosting the Mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington. They're calling on political leaders to address the needs of poor and low-income people all across this country. It's a virtual assembly that comes at a moment of great social and political energy. Ahead of the event, I sat down with Bishop Barber to find out how the Poor People's Campaign is building a coalition of Americans fighting for economic justice more than 50 years after Dr. King first laid out his vision. The Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, president of Repairs of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Sir, thank you for joining us. Man, I'm glad to be with you on today. You know, there are a lot of people who might not know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was actually assassinated while he was engaging in a poor people's campaign, right? Trying to go across the country mm-hmm. and push for access to housing, an annual wage. How intentionally are you and your organization walking in that spirit of Dr. King? Well, we're actually using two models. One of the models we use for organizing is moral fusion that comes actually out of reconstruction. When black and white people after slavery got together to reconstruct the South, and to rewrite constitutions and to implement policies that would address the post effects of slavery. And we believe there have been two reconstructions, one in the 1800s, one in the 1960s, and we're now in the midst of the birth pains of a third reconstruction. But yes, we're also looking at the model that Dr. King used when he decided to say these three things. Number one, that racism, poverty, and militarism were the triune evils that were destroying the American society. And when he said racism, he meant it in all of its form, black people, native people, immigrants. But also when he said that America was the greatest purveyor of violence in the entire world, because the country has never really wanted to deal with these three things. In fact, people told him, stay over there and deal with civil rights, don't deal with poverty, and you better not deal with war. You better not deal with Mm. militarism. So today, 
We're saying there are five interlocking evils. Systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. And we are finding, just like Dr. King found, that there's a remnant of people of every race, creed, color, sexuality who say it's time that we address these issues, not as silos, but together. When you think back to 1968, a year of great tumult and fire and protest, and it feels like 2020 right now, it feels like, man, like we're in the midst of that same kind of, uh, of moment. How clear is that through line, do you think, from the struggles of 1968, especially the way poor people were being impacted by policy, to what we're seeing now with COVID-19 and policing and everything that has been weighing on poor folks today? Well, you know, actually, you have to step back to 65. It was after the passage of the Voting Rights Act that opened up the possibility for black poor people and white poor people, particularly in the South, to build what Dr. King called a new coalition, to build a coalition that could bring into being the beloved community in terms of public policy. He said that on the steps of the uh, Alabama State House at the end of the Seminole Montgomery March in 1965. He said every time there is the possibility of black poor people and white poor people coming together, the aristocracy, the greedy, the wealthy, so division. He said they've been doing it all along. It's mm-hmm. what they did in the 1800s. It's what they're doing now. And remember, riots broke out in 65. The Watts riots and many of those riots. 68, what we saw in riots, were well, many of those were after Dr. King's assassination, Bobby Kennedy's assassination. But in 65, they actually started right after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. So in some ways, we must understand what we see now as happening now, but not beginning now. Mm-hmm. All of this this kindling has been put on the fire. And now you have this match. And the match is George Floyd, but it's more. The match is before COVID, 140 million people were poor and low wealth. Then COVID happens. Then we have an inept response, a negligent response. And then we see a shooting by shotgun. We see a breaking in a house killing. Then we see a whole death from start to finish in the lynching of George Floyd. And what it did when he said, I can't breathe, it's like shorthand for what many people are experiencing in America. I can't breathe because of all of these oppressive policies, policies that are connected to death. We are in a moment where people are having an existential shock because the government that who is supposed to protect life, that's the first principle, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, has actually promoted death. Bishop Barber, how do we then untether ourselves from the violence that has bound up this country from the beginning. How do we begin to untether ourselves from those original sins? I know you've um, dubbed the, this new Poor People's Campaign a national call for moral revival. Can we moralize our way out of this? Has this country ever shown any willingness to really look itself in, in, in the face, look itself in the eye and say, we are better than this? Or are we just falling back on who we actually are, <laughs> which is murderous and violent and, you know, policy that harms? Mm-hmm. Well, we can't without mass mobilization, moral mobilization. We've remember we the history is we've always had alongside this lethal history, the history of love and justice. And we have made progress. The problem is we can't act as though we ever quit. The the Bible says let justice roll. It doesn't say let justice come to a certain place and stop. And we have to choose a way of nonviolence, but it must be revolutionary nonviolence. It's not just not it's not cutesy, it's not pretty. That's why I don't like when politicians say if the protesters are just peaceful, peacefulness is not the opposite of violence. 
Nonviolence is the option of violence. If truth meets lies, it ain't going to be that peaceful. If injustice meets injustice, there's going to be tension. You don't change things without tension. You learn that in basic physics, right? So what we need is creative tension. We need justice tension. So this is the possibility of a third reconstruct. It's going to be messy, but we have to do it. And we have to also do it by not retreating to our silos and then say, we're not talking about now being left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, but we're going to fight for life over death. And then finally, we have to do it in coalition. So therefore, we need black folk and white folk and brown folk and red folk and gay folk and straight folk and trans folk and Jewish and Muslim and Christian and and Sikh and humanitarian and people without faith but with a moral conscience and urban and rural to come together to see that's the way we can create the fullness of this third reconstruction and I believe turn some things in a different direction. You know, you're not uh, new to this work at all by any means in North Carolina at the NWCP. And here you are again with the Poor People's Campaign. And I'm wondering, what exactly are the policy goals here? Because it's not just about um, moralizing why we should change, but you're actually pushing for real policy. Oh, yeah. In this movement, the Poor People's Campaign, what do we want? For instance, under racism, we say we want to address voter registration, full restoration of the Voting Rights Act and expanding it. Under the issue of resegregation of schools, we want fully funded public education and desegregated schools in a way that benefits everybody. We want to see an end to mass incarceration. We want to see um, a fair and just immigration policies. We want to see a really fair way in removing our First Nation people from under the laws that were put in place during the wars in the 1800s. On poverty, for instance, we know right now that if we raise the living wage to $15 an hour, 39 million people would move out of low wealth. If we raise it to a home wage, a home wage, that is, you had enough money to own, own your own home, 83 million people would raise up out of poverty and low wage. We need a basic annual income. We need health care because 80 million people are uninsured or uninsured. We're the only country in the world that's of the 25 wealthiest that attaches health care to your job and not to your body and not to your humanity. The policies we're putting forth are good for the whole society. Now, they would be the right thing to do even if they weren't. But the fact of the matter is Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Peace Prize economist, has said the cost of inequality is worse than the cost to fix it. Wow. Speaking of that, it's, it's like movement building is about organizing ideas and platforms, but it's also about organizing people. And, and I wonder how uh, back in 68, the original Poor People's Campaign, uh, how did they organize and how are you organizing? Are you, are you taking lessons from the past in terms of organizing those poor black folks and poor white folks, which, again, hasn't happened often in modern times? So one of the things Dr. King went to Appalachia and talked to white people in the coal mines and poor folk in the Delta. We've done the same thing. I've been in the hills of Kentucky. We've got white coal miners now organizing with black folk from the Delta. We've got Apache, Native uh, indigenous people organizing with farm workers out of Kansas. Now, what we're doing different is we said we were going to build permanently organized communities at the state level. Because when we did our analysis, a lot of things that continue poverty happens at the state levels, too. States block health care. States cut education budget. States allow corporations in their states to have too much free course. So what we decided to do was build coordinating committees, 
with three chairs, a poor and impacted person, a religious leader, and an advocate. And so now we have 45 of those across in, in 45 states. In addition to that, we now have 19 religious organizations, denominations joined with this movement. We were able to bring significant number of unions in and 150 other grassroots organizations into this movement around addressing these five interlocking injustices. But most importantly is the people. And that's the power. It's the fact that we have found out that if you register 15% of poor and low wealth people in this country around an agenda and they vote, they can fundamentally shift the elections all over this country. Up next, Bishop Barber and I dig deeper on the idea of coalition building, and he breaks down how people are coming together today across racial and geographic divides to address class and economic inequality. That's after the break. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning in your inbox, you'll find expert analysis, video highlights of your favorite shows. Running for re-election is when you actually get your report card from the American people. Previews from our podcasts and documentaries, as well as written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Bishop Barber, so many years after Dr. King's 1968 movement, uh, we've seen the percentage of Americans living below the poverty line actually increase. Yep. With that backdrop, what are the actual challenges of organizing coalitions, especially black and white, right? Because sometimes it seemed like folks would be voting in a similar interest, but getting folks together is tough, especially along racial lines. Well, it is to some degree, especially when people don't try and they assume that it can't be done. Hmm. Why has it been hard? Because since Poor People's Campaign and, and Lyndon Baines Johnson's war on poverty that actually began in Harlan County, Kentucky, When's the last time you've heard a debate on poverty at the presidential level? I haven't. <laughs> When's the last time you've heard a debate on racism, on voter suppression? That's the problem. Our politics have been trapped by a neoliberal imagination that says, on the one hand, if you just deal with the middle class, it'll fix everything. Or on the other hand, you have extreme social Darwinism connected to neoliberalism that says if you just take care to, at the top, it'll trickle down. Both of those imaginations are too anemic to deal with the reality of 43% of the people in America right now living in poverty and low wealth, $400 away from an economic disaster. Now, society can't stand that for so long. And so what we have found is that if you go to people, as we have gone, I remember when we were told, don't go to Kentucky, don't go to Harlan County, don't go to Corbin, Kentucky. You can't do anything up there. Those people are racist. Those counties voted for Trump. 
When we went there, we found out, first of all, yes, people that, many people that voted voted for Trump, but a lot of them didn't even vote. Number two, we found out that people there felt like they were left out. Number three, when we taught them the connections between systemic racism, voter suppression, and people getting elected who actually were hurting them, the irony is most people that get elected by racist voter suppression, when they get in office, they vote on policies that hurt mostly poor white people in raw numbers. People would say, well, we need to be together. And we actually saw three counties in Kentucky change from Trump to Democrat in this last governor's race and the governor won and the governor acknowledged on the night of his election. He didn't, we never endorsed him, but he said, I was taught in this campaign that some things are not about left and right, but about right and wrong. That's the language that we use. So it is tough, Tremaine, but what is the, what's the option? I, I was talking to a um, consultant one time and he says, well, the metrics tell us that poor people and poor black people and white people don't get together. I said, when have you taken your metric hind parts into the field? <laughs> Measurements, if, if Dr. King had followed the measurement, he'd have never went to Selma. People said Selma was the wrong place, the wrong time. It was too deep in the South. It won't work. They're going to kill you. I'm not against metrics because we use them. But metrics can never determine our imagination. Either we have given up on human possibility and humanity and redemption, or we've not. In our movement, we've chosen not to give up, and we're seeing the results of it. So it's hard, but there's something worse. There's something harder, and that's living in an unequal society. There's also a place, Tremaine, where I live in faith. My faith teaches me that one of the great sins is not trying and failing. It's never trying. It's, It's losing your belief. It's losing your hope. It's deciding and becoming apathetic because... Everything we celebrate today as progressive, a hundred years ago, we were told it'd never be possible. Somebody has to get out of that it can never be done and go to work. Given the backdrop of what you've been doing, and we see recently with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, you turn the TV on and you see crowds that are either completely white, half white, Mm -hmm. bunch of white folks in a way that we just hadn't seen that, (laughs) you know, five years ago. That's right. What can you appreciate um, about this kind of upstart Black Lives Matter movement and the coalition they're building? And how do uh, what you're doing and what they've been able to do coalesce and come together? Oh, we work together because, I mean, I'm in conversation with folk from Black Lives Matter. We work together. I love it. And I would say, though, this didn't just happen because of one person being murdered. There was a lot of organizing going on that that was the kindling. The spark may have happened, just like Rosa Parks sat down, right? But there were people organizing in Montgomery long before she sat down. They put out 50,000 leaflets in Montgomery about the boycott the few days after Rosa Parks sat down. Ain't no way in the world they Xerox 50,000 people on them old little Xerox machines like that in two days. <laughs> right, right. Somebody did some organizing. Now, they may not have told us, but somebody did some organizing to plan for things. Mm-hmm. My point is, history has told us it's always happened. And what I know about Black Lives Matter, they understand that police violence is a form of violence and a form of racism. But we also need fundamental reconstruction of this, of this society. I tell the folk in the Poor People's Campaign, Liz and I do, I don't know if this campaign is going to fix most of the things or if this campaign is going to start to fix or if this campaign is just going to change the narrative 
and build power and then we move out of the way and some other folk take over. But I know it's going to do something. And I know in every age we have to do something. And what we have to do is stop trying to find a silver bullet or trying to find a one thing. Don't worry about who's going to get the credit. Just keep working and declaring your nonviolent resistance to the violent ways of this society. And as the old folks said, we'll understand it better by and by. So before I let you go, I definitely want to talk about this Saturday. It's the culmination of a lot of work. Does it feel like you've arrived at this moment where you can exhale, or is this the beginning oh. <laughs> of something? Is there more work after the Saturday? No. So tell us about what's going on Saturday and, and what happens after that. Yeah, this is a commencement and a commencing. So on Saturday, we're going to have a digital gathering. People, by the thousands, will be joining us online on more than 200 various outlets. And MSNBC is one of them and others that are allowing us to use your platform. And, you know, it's going to be powerful. It's going to be heart-wrenching, but it will also be hopeful. And we got simple goals. Put a face on this issue so that no longer can poverty be racialized or run away from. Number two, change the narrative. In order to change the narrative, you got to change the narrators. Somebody's been hurting our people. It's gone on far too long, and we will not be silent anymore. Anymore. Mm. This is beginning, not an end. And then the third thing is to announce the agenda, what we're demanding, and saying to candidates, you don't have to ask us to endorse you. Endorse this agenda, and people will know. We're going to evaluate who's closest to this agenda, who's closest to it. You may not get everything, but who's closest? Who's really going to lift up and deal with the fact of 143 million people living in poverty? And then the last thing is we're saying we're going to build power. We're going to register people for the movement who vote and turn them out for the election, but also turn them on after the election. We want an agenda and we're going to push because if America can't get this right, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of death, and in the midst of all this police violence. If we can't have a reconstruction and a turning now, God help us. God help us as a nation. Time out. Time is out for moderation. I want to quote a white man who was a friend of the deep historical friend of mine. I didn't know him, but he's a deep friend of mine. His name is William Lord Garrison. He was a friend of Frederick Douglass. When somebody asked him, they said, look, you're white. Why don't you be moderate? If you're moderate, we can work on this slavery. We'll deal with it, but just be moderate. He said, go tell a woman whose child is burning in a house to be moderate. Mm -hmm. Don't ever come to me and tell me to be moderate when it comes to injustice. Moderate when it comes to the ravages of slavery. I will be heard and we will change this reality. This is the time to say enough. And we're calling people who believe that we can be better to come on in, join, and let's be better together. Reverend Dr. Barber, as always, it's always an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. And, and I think if there's, there are many takeaways, uh, but one is that uh, through the historic haze of violence, there has been great love and compassion. Yeah. And I know you're leading with a chest full of that. So, sir, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Forward together, not one step back. Take care, my friend. That was the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. You can catch this weekend's Mass Poor People's Assembly on MSNBC.com and on MSNBC's YouTube account. 
That's this Saturday, June 20th, from 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And before we go, the Supreme Court issued a decision earlier today on the future of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, stating that President Trump was wrong in terminating DACA. My colleague, Nicole Acevedo, digital reporter for NBC News, filled me in on the details. The decision was written by Justice Roberts. It was a 5-4 to four decision. And even one of the quotes is that the move from the Trump administration was arbitrary and capricious, basically saying that they didn't bring enough evidence for them to argue that DACA was illegal in the first place. It means that DACA remains as a program. It also means that the Trump administration, if they wanted to, could come back and argue again why they think the program should end. We know that the Trump administration, specifically Donald Trump, has run on a platform where he really puts immigration as a central issue. So he might continue to use this on an election year to move his base. But also, you know, a lot of public opinion polls side with the dreamers. Into America producer Max Jacobs caught up Luis Cortez Romero to get his reaction. Hello? Hi, Luis. Hey, this is Max with NBC. Hey, how are you? Romero was our guest on the podcast on Wednesday. He's a DACA recipient and immigration attorney who was co-counsel on the case. We've been waiting for a decision almost on a weekly basis since like early May. Mm-hmm. And so and it was always kind of so we I honestly thought like maybe it's going to get kicked down a little bit more. So when I saw that it came out, my heart dropped because I, I think we were all just preparing for the worst. And and so I'm trying to figure out what it's saying. <laughs> and then we, I realized that we won and I, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> but I'm feeling a lot better now <laughs> than I did yesterday. <laughs> Luis told us the first people he called were his clients, the six DACA recipients who were named plaintiffs in the case. It, it, there's, it's a big weight lifted off my shoulders, and I feel that, at least for me and 800,000 other people, we're able to get a bit of a sigh of relief for a moment. Um, that you know We're able to continue to see a future in one of the only places we can call home. And so it, it feels good to, to continue to be welcomed. To hear more of Luis's story, check out Wednesday's episode of the podcast. Into America is produced by Isabel Angel, Allison Bailey, Aaron Dalton, Max Jacobs, Barbara Rabb, Claire Tai, Aisha Turner, and Preeti Varathan. Original music by Hannes Brown. Our executive producer is Ellen Frankman. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of audio. I'm Tremaine Lee. Check your feeds tomorrow. We're bringing you a special conversation that I'm moderating to mark Juneteenth. And we'll catch you next week on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday.
Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.